Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. We are fortunate that there is an ongoing interest in developing new medications to help people who have psychiatric conditions. But lately, we seem to be looking backwards a bit at substances that have been known to us for a long time. And in particular, there's a lot of research going on now about psilocybin, one of the old psychedelics, and it has considerable interest. We thought it necessary to take an overview of this class of substances and maybe someday medications. Carol Matthews is a psychiatrist associated with the College of Medicine at the University of Florida, and she kindly agreed to talk to us about this. Dr. Matthews, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. For many people, the term psilocybin connotes days of LSD, mushrooms, and the like. Then it became stigmatized. How is it that this class of medications that was basically once removed from standardized medicine is now actually being looked at with some hope that it has a real therapeutic benefit? How is this happening? Well, I think to really know about why psilocybin has come back into the pharmacopoeia, you have to go back a little bit to the history of the hallucinogens and their history with psychiatry in particular. It begins with LSD, which was used by a variety of people for religious experiences, coming-of-age experiences, as was psilocybin. And then in the 1940s, a scientist with Sandoz essentially rediscovered psilocybin and started distributing it in small samples to psychiatry with the suggestion that it could be used for therapeutic approaches. This was prior to the FDA ruling that drugs without FDA approval could not be distributed across state lines, and so Sandoz sent packages of LSD to psychiatrists and, as I said, suggested that they use them for themselves and that they test them on their patients to treat a whole variety of psychiatric illnesses. From 1943 to 1962, psychiatrists were experimenting broadly. They were trying to induce psychosis in their patients. They were trying to treat alcoholism. They were taking it themselves. They were doing studies, but they were doing what we would now to be considered very poorly controlled studies that really did not protect patients. That continued until the early 1960s. And at that time, the FDA introduced the Drug Abuse Control Act. And they also introduced, in 1962, they introduced new regulations with regard to safety and efficacy of these treatments. They essentially introduced the rules regarding clinical trials for new drugs. The other thing that happened during that time was that people were using LSD and and these other psychedelics more widely. And there were uncontrolled dosing and with sometimes people cut the treatments with other things. They had to have what would be called bad trips. And there were a number of very well-publicized homicides that occurred with LSD use in the 1970s. Essentially, between 1962, when the rules changed with regard to safety testing for all medications, and 1975, when the NIH stopped funding all studies for the use of psychedelics in psychiatric treatment, there were only one or two laboratories who were doing this research. So it was really underground for a long time. In 2015, Tom Insel, who was the head of the National Institutes of Mental Health, was asked about the use of psilocybin in particular, but also other medications because some of the laboratories that had been doing the research for so many years were starting to publish. And at that time, he said there was interest in these medications and in using them for treatment, although he also said that these medications were not patentable. They were off patent, and so drug companies would not be interested in them. However, that essentially restarted more public interest. There had been research going on for 20 or 30 years, but it was very limited and very controlled because psilocybin, LSD, the MDMA were all considered to be Schedule I medications, which meant that they had a very 
high abuse potential and were therefore very strictly controlled by the government, and only a few laboratories had the ability to do research with them. So now we are in the second decade of the 2000s, and we're hearing that there are studies looking at these medications again. What are the researchers looking at? Are they looking at depressions, post-traumatic stress disorders, schizophrenias, OCD? Is there a trend towards what class of problems that they are looking at? Oh, yes. There's two types of research that are now going on or being proposed, particularly with psilocybin. One of those is using these medications, psilocybin again in particular, as an adjunct to psychotherapy. And the other is used as a direct treatment for, I'm going to call them fear-based disorders, although that's not exactly right, disorders where we know that serotonergic agents have an impact. The focus has been on depression, PTSD, and OCD lately. It has in the past been on alcohol use disorders. There have been a few small studies in alcohol use disorder as well. But right now, the primary focus appears to be on depression, PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And actually, interestingly, anxiety associated with terminal disease was where things really first started. Those studies have not been particularly promising, although I think there's some indication that they may have helped some people. One of the topics that comes up frequently is whether any of our medication treatments actually fix the undercore, the basic problem, or do they simply control it to allow people to function? Is there any sense of whether this class of medications is simply another version, though if it helps people, it helps people to be sure, but is another version of mitigating or fixing, or is there a real sense of undoing the disorder, shall I say? So that's actually a great question, and it's a difficult one to answer because I think in psychiatry we have no cures for any illnesses even today. The exception perhaps is cognitive behavioral therapy for disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder and perhaps depression where you can see in some people long-term permanent remission. And so the idea of these medications in particular, psilocybin specifically, is right now the best hope is to use it as an adjunct to psychotherapy to make people more open to the psychotherapeutic experience and more able to make change. And in that context, you could argue that perhaps psilocybin may be helping to not fix the problem, but make permanent change to undo some of the, the long-term consequences of the problem. But I don't think that any medication that we have today actually cures any of the psychiatric illnesses that we treat. Is there a sense that this is going in the right direction? Do we have any substantial data that's come from the research that's been done thus far that says that, yes, there may be a good treatment signal here? Or are we still just looking around, testing the waters to see if we should go any further? The data that are the strongest actually come from ketamine, which is not the same as psilocybin, but has some similar properties and some similar biochemistry. And there, the data are actually quite strong, particularly for depression. The data are still being refined in terms of the populations that are most benefited, how to use this medication, how long to use it, etc. But if you then take that and generalize it to psilocybin, we are in the early days. We have done safety studies. We know now that it's fairly safe. It has good tolerability, very small adverse effect profile. It does not appear to be a high abuse potential as it was classified by the FDA. We do not have yet very big studies looking at whether it will be effective. As I said, the way 
way the funding has worked for the past 30 years has been such that only a very few laboratories have been able to get funding and actually thus be able to get access to these drugs. And therefore, there have been only very small studies that have come out. That has loosened some in this current day. And so there are laboratories like Johns Hopkins and Yale that are doing studies. So it's more than just one or two labs. But we are still in the very early days of pilot testing for most of these disorders. When someone actually goes into a study and they are given psilocybin, is it a synthetic product? Is it somehow a natural product or harvest from other substances? Who is actually making, where are they actually getting the psilocybin? For all of these studies that are funded by the National Institutes of Health, they are synthetic products bought by companies, and the companies are regulated. I don't think it's Sandoz anymore, the original maker of synthetic psilocybin, but in all of these studies that are approved and funded, they are synthetic derivatives. Now, you can, as you know, get processed psilocybin off the Internet, and certainly native populations still use it across the world in its native form, but they are synthetic versions in all of the research studies that are approved by the U.S. government. One of the issues that comes to mind, it's complicated, but there is a tremendous amount of discussion now about the use of medical marijuana. Medical marijuana was once considered a Schedule One, and we're finding a signal here and a signal there. Thematically, are we seeing something that's similar to the whole process, the concepts of what works for treatment in what's happening with medical marijuana and the psychedelics, or might that be too broad a question? I think it is a broad question, but I think that there are some parallels. Medical marijuana has expanded dramatically in what people are trying to use it for, and it's actually, in some ways, gotten ahead of itself in terms of the regulatory issues, meaning that it's legal in many states to be used, but there are not good data yet as to what it's effective for. But medical marijuana has also changed in that there's no regulation in terms of, it is still natural product. There's very little regulation in most states in terms of how potent it is. There are hundreds of chemicals in marijuana, and so which of those components are effective for which disorders is not clear. Psilocybin is a little bit more straightforward because, as I said, almost all of the research that's being conducted is being conducted with a synthetic preparation of the chemical, and there is actually quite a bit known about the biology and the biochemistry of that compound. It's not the whole fungus is not being used. It's the hallucinogenic or the psychedelic derivative of that, whereas with marijuana, the two main active ingredients are THC and cannabidiol, only two of hundreds of chemicals that are actually present in the marijuana plant. So it's a little bit more complicated. But I would say that people are not using magic mushrooms or shrooms in research. They're using psilocybin, which is the chemical that comes out of those plants. So there is automatically a clinical difference that when it comes to those of us who have to choose which medication to use for a patient, that narrows the field considerably, and we know precisely, more and more precisely, what a person is putting into their bodies. A very important difference, a very important difference. Right. It is a very important difference, and it's, it's why I, as a researcher, am more interested in psilocybin than I am in medical marijuana, because psilocybin, you can actually do controlled trials, right? You know what you're giving patients. You can dose it very precisely. You can even give an active placebo. So in the ketamine studies, they gave benzodiazepines as a placebo to mimic the relaxation effect, and they gave it at low doses so you didn't get the psychedelic effect to make sure that they were doing clinical well-controlled studies. You can do that to the same extent with psilocybin using niacin, which causes flushing. It's not a perfect placebo. But when you give somebody marijuana, particularly smokable marijuana, unless you're very carefully controlling it, you have no real idea what you're giving them. 
There is a term, the entourage effect, and meaning there are so many variables in the marijuana molecule, at least the smokable or over-the-counter, that we really don't know, as you were just saying, we really don't know precisely which one is doing what to our bodies. Right. And so there have been studies. The classic one is the example of pediatric epilepsy, where we have pulled out one component of marijuana, created a synthetic version of it in the laboratory, and tested it, and that now is approved. Epidex, epidex or something epidex, like that. Epidex, right. It's the first marketed component, a THC derivative, that is clearly shown efficacy. And that has encouraged not only research, which, like psilocybin, has been going on in clinics for dozens of years, but just in very, in very small ways. In, in very few laboratories. That has encouraged not only research in this field, but also with some risk, an explosion of marijuana as being used for many things for which there are little to no data. For some things we have better data and for others we have very little. So a patient who is suffering from a nasty treatment-resistant depression and we just can't seem to get where we want to be with them clinically, how would they know if they would know that they were a candidate for a psilocybin study? I'm sure people are going to ask that. Yes. So actually, luckily, the United States government requires all clinical trials, whether they are industry sponsored by drug companies or done through researchers at universities, to be registered on clinicaltrials.gov. Clinicaltrials.gov is a great resource because anyone can go onto it and search for psilocybin, can search for depression research, and can find all of the clinical trials that are being done in that field. And I would recommend that that is by far the safest and most effective way to find clinical research that's happening that someone might be a candidate for. The same thing is true for cancer. This is how cancer research has been conducted for 20 or 30 years as a cancer research network, but it's also through clinicaltrials.gov where you are a psychiatrist or you yourself can search for what clinical trials there might be. And I would argue that it may not just be psilocybin. There may be other clinical trials that someone might be eligible for that might be of interest and maybe a better fit. So it, it gives you a way of looking for research in the field of interest across many different areas. It's almost redundant sometimes to put out the warning, but I do remember when I was a resident being introduced to a lady who was in the hospital for several years having taken a unknown psychedelic, that's what, that's what we were told, and was in a coma-like state for the longest period of time. And so while we're talking about the psilocybin, and I'd like to hear more of your caveats about this, people need to be somewhat hesitant about trying to take it by themselves. It's not a safe Absolutely. Absolutely. I never recommend to my patients that they take psilocybin or any of these substances by themselves without working through an approved clinical trial. And the reason is many. Number one, you don't know what you're getting. You don't know if you're actually getting psilocybin. They have done studies in marijuana, actually, where ordering it over the internet, if you're actually, if you get it at all, often there's very little THC in it. Sometimes there's other things in it. The same is true for psilocybin. It's true for all of these things. You don't know what you're getting. Many times it's been cut with other things, and you can't control your dosing. You don't know. You're not monitored from a safety perspective. And as I said, in the early days, Sandoz and the early researchers were actually using psilocybin to try to induce psychosis so that they could study schizophrenia. It is not without risk. And I would never encourage a patient to use any of these medications or substances off-label, as it were, without the supervision of a psychiatrist or researcher who really has safety protocols in place. And the same is true for ketamine. It's true for all of these, where you really want to do it in a controlled setting where somebody can make sure that you're safe and, and you know what you're getting.
One of the resources that I frequently use just for background is YouTube, and I went online to look at different postings about the use of psilocybin for a whole variety of psychiatric issues, and one of the things that pops up, and it's a tricky question, and I don't know if you or I can actually answer it. People go online, they're seeing it, so we need to address it, and a lot of people are proclaiming it to be a gift, magical pill, and it's it's not. Is this whole notion that it causes a cleansing, self-mystical experience, and that's where the healing is, that that's the curative element. What's your experiences? What are your thoughts? I know we don't have hard answers. We don't have hard answers, and I think this gets back to the idea, and this is what the researchers at Johns Hopkins are looking at, are the idea of using these medications as adjuncts to psychotherapy. It is true that that Native populations and Indigenous peoples did use these medications, or actually these plants at the time, these funguses, as ways of expanding consciousness both in religious ceremonies and actually in coming-of-age ceremonies. However, you do have to be careful because we also know that they can induce psychosis, they can induce very uncomfortable, scary, and dangerous symptoms as well. One of the lines of research that is happening is this idea of using these medications to help promote psychotherapeutic gain. I think that's a very difficult area of research, and I think part of the reason is it's hard to know what a psychotherapeutic gain is unless you're doing it in the context of something like cognitive behavioral therapy where there are very concrete goals in mind, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic psychotherapy, where change is a little bit more gradual and it's a little bit less operationalized, is a little bit more difficult to to sort out. So I think this is a tricky area of research. And I think actually the person that I would talk to, Adam Strauss. Adam Strauss is a performance artist and he has a great show called The Mushroom Cure about his own obsessive compulsive disorder and his quest to use psychedelics to treat his obsessive compulsive disorder, and in particular psilocybin. And he has a very funny show, but it's also a very real and raw show. And his experience was that he ended up in the emergency room. He called 911 on himself at least twice because of where he got very psychotic and very paranoid. And in the end, what he says is, this is not a cure. Psilocybin in the end did help him to be able to use psychotherapy more effectively, but it definitely had its downfall and he would never recommend doing what he did, which is experimenting off the Internet because the risks were so high. So he's actually a very interesting person to talk to. I would recommend that you do that because personal experience with it, and he's also very smart and very thoughtful. His mother is a psychotherapist, treatment-resistant, and really thoughtful about it. It speaks so much to the excitement of real research going on, but also to the caveat that if you are suffering from something which we cannot yet fix, adequately, please don't step ahead of the train and do things that haven't been tested. It's not just safe. I wish I could say that it was, but it's not, as you just indicated. Carol Matthews is a psychiatrist at the University of Florida, and she has taken us with a very good overview of the psilocybin issues, psychedelic issues, and what we're trying to do with this whole substance class to help people who do suffer from treatment-resistant psychiatric conditions. Dr. Matthews, thank you so much. This was quite interesting. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.